0: With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit
1: me with these verbal attacks.
0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. Happy people are annoying. And I think that's true. If you're, First off, that's the title of a book by my next guest, Josh Peck. You may have heard about Josh if you had watched the Nickelodeon show, Drake and Josh, which is the most popular Nickelodeon show ever, and he was the star of it. He's been in a ton of movies and he's got amazing stories to tell about his experiences. And now he's a huge, successful YouTuber, TikToker, social media guy. But he really has uh, an amazing story, which is worth reading about and listening to. At first, it seems like almost the classic Hollywood success, child star sort of story. Then he gets into drugs, he recovers from it, he reinvents himself as a YouTuber. But he's I mean, he's a really interesting guy. Like, he started doing stand-up comedy at the age of eight, and then it's interesting to see how he morphed that into a Hollywood career at such a young age and how he continues to reinvent himself each time despite all the things that were holding him back. And, of course, these stories are in his book, Happy People Are Annoying. We talk about some of these stories and then some in the podcast that you're about to listen to. I really enjoy talking to him, so here he is.
1: When I made the deal for this, I said, listen, I don't want a ghostwriter, but I know that I need a producer or whatever version of that, someone I can bother to for help with this thing. And, and he agreed. And, and as I said in, in the acknowledgements, this book would suck without him. It might and still how, suck, how you, but you,
0: less. No, the book, you don't have to be self-deprecating. I'm <laughs> the master of that. It says in the book, you met him, Ryan Holiday, 15 years ago. How'd you meet him? I think I met Ryan... 10 years ago.
1: Ryan was an assistant for my manager whose office I'm in now. And he, of course, at, at first of all, it frustrates me that he's like a year younger than me. Cause I'm like, how is someone so like blessed with stoicism, uh, younger than me? Cause I, I still feel so infantile, but, um, at, he was 21. And of course at that time he was like at the forefront thinking, you know, 10 years ahead, as far as YouTube goes. And he said, why don't, I have one of our YouTube clients do something with Josh and we'll do like a collab video because I had a movie I had to promote. So that was the first time I met Ryan and of course completely forgot. And 10 years later, going through Ego is the Enemy and, and booking my own podcast guests, I reached out to him on Instagram and he said, do you remember me? And I was like, oh my God, in that moment, I was like, everything came flooded back. And I was like, wow, I have a very impressive friend now. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's funny that he was the assistant. I, who hasn't he been the assistant to at different points? That guy has been the assistant to everyone and now he's the master.
1: He really is. He's just my my biggest thing about Ryan is that he he literally walks the walk and I'm sure you can agree like so rarely, you know, people talk a great game, but rarely are they actually living what they're they're writing about.
0: It's really true. I mean, I have uh I mean we go way back. So I have a lot of stories, but I want to, I actually want to talk about your story, Josh. And, and it's a real, I hate to use the phrase because for me, it's almost a cliche now, but it's a real choose yourself story. You really, I, and I always thought of, so that, you know, the concept of choosing oneself is that you, that the way to be successful is not waiting for, you know, like you're some producer to call you back for a movie role, but for you to, make your own YouTube videos or as you did also vine videos and so on and, and find success that way. And I always thought, okay, this is a path to success. But in, in your book, what I realized actually is that when one chooses themselves, it's not necessarily a path to success. It's a path away from pain. Mm. Like each point in your life where you had the most pain to where it's like you couldn't take it anymore. You had to find another path, that that got rid of all the people you were trying to please or waiting to choose, you or, you, or you were waiting for them to choose you and so on.
1: It's a great point. I mean, for me, pain has been the great motivator in my life. You know, people love to ask, what would you tell, you know, your 13-year-old version of yourself or or, or 22-year-old? Like, would you give yourself any advice? And I say no because it would inhibit me from crashing and burning at the times in which I did because that was a requisite for me to be able to finally be sick and tired of my old way and to welcome in some, some good advice.
0: You know, that's a, a great point too, because it's, it's, again, it's almost a cliche to say, oh, don't have any regrets. But I think actually there's a certain power to regret where, you know, you have to remember these bad things because yes, maybe it's, you don't have any regrets in the sense that you're glad you went through these things. But there's still bad things, and it's still the case that you could have been happier if you weren't going through those things then. But it's the regret of these things that actually, you know, lead you to who you are. Not necessarily the fact that you did those things, but the fact that it felt really bad at the time.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've always had to uh, uh, sort of the bad combination for my life, or what's always led me astray, has been a desire to people-please. Um, you know, as an actor, what I realized, and it took me, you know, only 20 years. So as you can tell, I'm a quick learner. Is like when a writer, I think Vince Gilligan might have said this on a podcast, who's the, the executive producer creator of Breaking Bad. Sure. He said, When I write a part, I've created a problem for myself. Because I don't know who can play it. I know who I envision in my head. There's a physicality, there's a look, but I don't know if that actor exists unless I'm specifically writing it for that actor. And so When you come in as an actor, it's like, I'm not exactly sure what I'm looking for. And for years as an actor, I'd walk into the room and I was trying to present a picture of what I thought they wanted instead of taking the text, using it as a blueprint for the way I'm going to build this character and becoming very observant of the notes, the subtleties, the nuance that the writer has given me, basically instructions on how to build this guy, but then having, you know, my own take on it and saying this is how I see it, if you agree, great. But if not, I'm only equipped with what I know to approach this character in the way I'm going to. And other than that, I I can't read your mind, and I'm not quite sure, even if I was capable, that you'd like if I was giving you what I thought you wanted.
0: Well, let me ask this, and and I wanna get to certain aspects of your story, but I was really fascinated towards the end of the book where you've had already you know, a 20-year career in, in acting uh, since you were a kid, you start taking lessons with this woman, Sharon Chatton, and she, ha- you, you, you do one line, and I think it was like, I don't know how long, like the next hour, she's going over with you just that one line so you can get it right. A, what was the line? And B, what did you do wrong that took you an hour to correct or for her to correct?
1: <laughs> you know what? It's funny. I remember it was a scene from social network because Sharon being the great teacher she is prefers to use either scenes from either really good movies or TV or plays because she wants to make sure that the scene works so that if it's not working it's your fault right Mm. so we do we do a lot of Sorkin and a lot of the great writers and and basically I was at I was 29 years old and I was again at this um I, I was at this crossroads in the, with this idea that I'd work so much, but I say in the book I had like a twenty twenty record. I was inconsistent. Sometimes I'd win big, sometimes I'd lose big. And I feared that if I didn't look at these blind spots that I had accrued, these bad habits, that I would never get the jobs I wanted and maybe just stop working altogether. So I went to Sharon because a friend of mine, Vincent D'Onofrio, if you're going to trust anyone about acting, he's a good one to trust, said there's one person to go see and it's Sharon. And I did. And basically she just, in an instant, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't mean, it was direct and it was just, you know, it was just very clear, like you don't know what you're doing and that's clear. And I couldn't believe after 15 years of success and possibly having more credits than anyone else in this class that I was again falling on my face, but there was something inspiring about it. Cause I knew like, there's only one day one, like, and this is it right now. And I'm on the road out of this. Either it's going to become clear that I should give up acting or I'm going to get better. And that's what happened.
0: I'm just, again, curious though, like what happened in that session? Like, do you feel that session you, you improved as an actor? Like, did she, did she convey some lesson right there that, that made an imprint?
1: It was that somehow I'd gotten through life with a, with a bit of natural talent and just like a, a fair amount of ambition and momentum. But I didn't know like the true tenets, like the, the, the foundation of how to approach script analysis, uh, uh, excuse me, script analysis and building a character. And so what she did was like any great teacher, she started, she was like, show me your work right? Like, I see you didn't even get the answer right, but now how did you get to the answer? And I'm like, oh, well, I just figured that this sounded good in my head. She's like, all right, where do we begin? Right? Like, in, and the, to me, acting has always sort of been this um, alchemistic practice. Like, I couldn't believe when people were really good, or even when the few moments I was good, I was like, where did that come from? Like, I hope I can harness that energy again. Instead of realizing that acting, like most things, is just a grouping of fundamentals. And you have to get really good at the methodology, whatever your way in is, be it method acting or Meisner or any of the other different approaches to acting, and getting really good at the fundamentals. And I needed to go to Sharon to learn those things. So no, I didn't get good in that moment, but I began to get stripped down of my bullshit to start being um, open to getting good.
0: What's like one, and I know I'm like honing in on this, but like, yeah, what's no, it's one fun. I like fundamental talking about of acting?
1: Well, it's about, you know, it's about speci- um, being specific and not general and being aware of the circumstance of your character, knowing where that character's going and where they've been right before this moment. It's depending on your methodology. It's about the personalization, the stakes of the moment. Where, What's your way in? Um, I remember I was playing a, a U.S. marshal in this, this show, Turner and Hooch, that I, I did last year for Disney Plus. and And I, I knew it was a fairly comedic, slightly like light dramatic role. And I felt comfortable with those things, but I surely didn't know how to play someone who could save someone like a U.S. marshal. So I started listening to these podcasts of these famous U.S. marshals, just giving testimony from different experiences, cases they'd had over the years. And started hearing this like deep humanity, like this deep desire to do the right thing. And I said, well, in my specific Josh Peck, the Jewish actor uh, from New York and Los Angeles way, like I do know that. I know what it means to me to want to do the right thing. So suddenly I had found a way in by getting these hints from the real people. I was like, oh, I know a way to ground this in reality, as opposed to presenting some pretend character that I think is macho or cool. It's like, no, this feels real for me. I know how to be decent. I know what the desire to be good is. So yeah, it's it's doing that work.
0: And and let me ask you, like, obviously, you had gotten many, many roles, many good roles up until in your career, up until this point where you started taking these acting classes. And you were also getting successful on as a YouTuber, obviously very successful and, and previously on Vine and, and social media. What made you decide, hey, I've been doing this fifteen years, time to improve?
1: <laughs> it's a great question. And,
0: and to some extent you go over this in the book, but I'm gonna ask questions that you go over in the book anyway. So
1: No, I I think that I I realized that I think most people live with a slight um, internal caveat system, right? And for me, it was, if I didn't get roles, if it didn't work out, I knew that I hadn't given my all to something, that I was holding back 10, 20%, because I still went into auditions reasonably prepared. I I knew that I would probably do better than a lot of people, but that because of these bad habits, these things that I had accrued that were holding me back, that I wouldn't get those the kind of roles that, that, I was, that I was working towards, that I wanted so badly. And my fear was that if by the time I was in my 50s, if I realized that it hadn't come together, I could always say, I always had this mini emotional out in the back of my head, which was like, well, it wasn't completely my fault. Had I really given myself to acting, had I really done the work, I'm sure I could have won. But it was just in facing that, like in in deciding to go to class, it was also saying what could come out on the other side of this is I've rid myself of the bad habits. I've now done all the work that's required and I might not still be enough. And that can be a scary proposition.
0: I think to get good at anything that's so A, competitive, and B, let's say some of it is, is subjective, uh, you know, some people might like you, some people might not. I think it's, I think it's a never ending process of not only studying the art, but studying yourself It kind of intermingles.
1: That's a great point. Yeah. It's the way we, I, I remember I was taking class last Thursday and we were doing sort of like a week of improv and just getting comfortable, especially because in the you know, in the, the Judd Apatow movies, and there's so much more improv, I think, than ever before. My teacher was like, you know, try not to do that thing. And it wasn't to me, it was to another student. We're like, you just kind of like laugh just to laugh, right? And I could see something trigger in her head because we're all guilty of these like little personality quirks that we use to protect that we think are like cute and charming that actually might be borderline annoying. So you're right. It's like constantly revealing your personality or personality things coming out and realizing like, how do I protect myself? What am I using to keep me keep me away from the world? But when I allow myself to investigate those those parts of me, I become a better actor. It becomes more compelling.
0: Do you find this also true in, in other things? Like let's say, well, well, we'll talk about YouTube in a little bit because you spent a lot of time kind of, A, realizing it was an art form and then B, trying to master that art form. But like with your podcast, for instance, you've interviewed, actually we've had a lot of overlap of of guests. I feel the same thing's true about podcasting. Like it's, I've been doing it like eight years and it's, it's difficult. It's not an easy thing. I'm always trying to figure it out.
1: What do you find, like, what do you think you know now more than ever that maybe you didn't even know, you know, two or three years ago?
0: I think the importance of approaching it like a conversation instead of, you know, aiming for certain answers or aiming for, for the interview aspect of it. Like a lot of podcasts are described as this is an interview podcast. Like we're having a conversation. I'm not asking you necessarily about your book, but yes. I will, don't worry. <laughs> but you know, the, the, the importance of having a conversation I think is, is I didn't, okay, let me put it another way. I didn't realize that podcasts were also entertainment. Mm. It, it's not just about getting you to say something or finding out something about you or learning something, although that's part of it. Part of it also has to be people listen because it's more entertaining than something else they could listen to and, and understanding what is entertainment in this context. And, and, and again, what about me has prevented me from making it as, as entertaining as possible is part of improvement.
1: I think that's a great point. I, I think my fav, probably one of my favorite episodes of yours, and I think it's just because it's three people I really like, is you and Giannis Papas and Chris DiStefano when you did the History Hyenas um, and your show sort of crossover. Yeah. Again, I mean, that's like the ultimate conversation, right? Because you know those those two guys are going to take it in every direction and you just kind of, you know, jump on.
0: Oh, my God. First off, that podcast was so hilarious. I, I so wish good. it still existed, but it, it had a good run, and it was such a pleasure for me to go on it and to have them on mine a couple times. We 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 did each other's podcast a couple times, and I just really like those guys. There and Chris Destafano and well both of them really. They're such great comedians, and uh, I can easily see see them, you know, reaching you know the top heights. Oh man! And you—you you were doing stand up at the age of eight or ten or whatever. Like you—you were—you said you were hitting every stand up club in New York City. And I'm—I'm I'm trying to look back at the pages. How old is he? Like you were like <laughs> eleven years old. What does that even mean? You know, I—I—I—I I, I, I was a. A uh, comedy club owner, I was Stand Up New York on uh, you know Seventy Eighth Street. You owned
1: Stand Up New York. I,
0: I owned fifty percent of it. I don't. I just actually sold my half, but I did for, for several years. Well, then you
1: were you got fifty percent of my door money for uh, at least a dozen performances. <laughs> well, I
0: I wasn't then, but if you were performing now, then yes. But I I could guarantee you, uh, nobody nobody very few people got rich owning a comedy club and I was not one of them. So I'm
1: telling you, you know, I, I, and my, the crew that I would bring with me for my bringer shows, they, they, they enjoyed the drinks. So I hope that I hope state of New York did well on the days I performed, but yeah, I was, you know, I, I was the son of a single mom. never met my pops. I was a chubby kid. So when I discovered comedy, it was like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is my way out of, of life. I mean, I, I love the Colin Quinn quote that I, I say in the book, like, you know, comedy is the closest, is as close to justice as it gets in showbiz, right? Because it's very clear to your point, it's not extremely subjective. I mean, sure, some people can be more, um uh, more Chappelle person than, you know, Hannah Gatsby, but inevitably, like a laugh is involuntary, right? You can't control it. And it's very clear what connected and what didn't. So when I saw the ability for me to capture an audience and to take over, whether it was a holiday dinner or a school performance and go from this powerless kid to all of a sudden being treated like, uh, you know, just another adult, it, it was revelatory. So I found, a. uh, uh sort of a Broadway Danny Rose type kids agent or he basically was he'd represent anyone at any age his name was Sid gold at gold star entertainment and and like I say in the book I went to his office it was like a geriatric rework and he said I I, I, I put kids um, you know in in up clubs and I, I get them stage time so if you can put together an act I'm willing to uh, get you some time and I said great um, also would you like to be my dad and he passed <laughs> for for then but yeah, you know, I wound up doing, you know, whether it was Catch Rising Stars, Stand Up New York, Gotham, Carolines, and I'd get snuck in through the back door of these uh, clubs so they wouldn't lose their liquor license, and that became my life.
0: You know, I I took stand up really seriously. Like I was going up every night, doing a couple shows a night, many times for about six or seven years, which is not really enough to get, I would say, even good at it. But it's it's. People don't realize it's it's a hard skill. You can't just be funny. Like there's a whole repertoire of skills you need to be good for five, ten, fifteen minutes on stage. Like every oh, second so. is an hour.
1: My buddy and I went and snuck um just randomly the night before we got I got a text that Bill Burr was gonna perform at the Ha ha comedy club in North Hollywood, which isn't not exactly the comedy store. You know, it's um it's like uh I'm trying to think of what's the the there's there's like this famous what's the famous um, comedy club in Long Island that that Seinfeld always does.
0: Oh, uh, Governors. Governors, or? exactly. So it's sort of
1: like not of the major LA improv Laugh Factory, but it's a little out there. And and I'm just watching Burr on stage commanding, and you could tell that he wanted to do this because he was working out new material. But he did 30 minutes, and he was hilarious. But his comfort, his ability in which to control the audience and not be intimidated by the fact that I'm not exactly sure whether he knew what he was going to say next, but he was so in command of what he was doing that there was no fear in it. It just said, "You know, we'll see what comes out next. You'll either like it or you won't, but I'm pretty sure we'll land on something funny eventually."
0: Yeah, no, he. I've I've had to perform right after him at <laughs> the, a club called the West Side Comedy Club in in New York, and. You're right. He was working on material, like I saw him writing right beforehand. He goes up, he kills, totally confident. And they had given me a choice. Do you want to go before or after him? And I always chose the after because how are you going to... A, when will I have that opportunity again to go after such sure. a star like that, like one of the best in the world? And, you know, that's that's a, a learning moment for me no matter what happens. But it was it was great to watch him in action in a in a small club. I love...
1: I think Bill on a podcast was talking about a guy who really bombed. Like it was bad. It was brutal. And he said, you know, the biggest mistake was that you didn't, you were too new to know how to let the air out. Like that's even a gift too, is that when you become as talented as they are, not that a Bill Burr going to bomb, but like your also ability in which to be like, I'm bombing right now and I'm going to draw attention to it so that you all don't have to feel uncomfortable. Because at the very least we can have a laugh at how bad this is going.
0: Yeah. And and, you know, it's, it's interesting because that's a particular skill too. Like some people too quickly when they, when they realize their momentum slowing on stage, they too quickly start joking about how they're bombing and that can get tired as well. Like there's a skill to joking about your bombing. Like Bill Burr, there's the classic video. I'm sure you've seen it. He's, he is bombing in Philadelphia. And then he just like in a stadium, and he just starts. They're all booing him. And he just starts shouting out, insulting them, and constantly insulting them until they're just like all cracking up. <laughs> like oh. he's calling them every name in the book. He's trashing them. He's he's he, the whole the whole audience. Like he he can't see any one person, so he's trashing all of them. And finally, they're all just like cracking up with him.
1: Oh, that's excellent.
0: Yeah, and uh, I, I I could I could talk all day about these different comedians, but you know it's interesting because you went into comedy, and that might be at such a young age and that might be your first example of sort of kind of choosing your own direction. You know, here you were, you were being, you know, you, you tell a story of how you never knew your dad, you're being bullied in school, you had weight issues and all all this other stuff. And, uh, and so you turned to comedy, which is like this whole subculture that must've just brought you alive at that age.
1: Yeah. It was an immediate currency because, you know, you can be a lot of something or too much. You can be too nice, too emotional, but you're never too funny. And like, like I say, like, um, it's a, it's a superpower. It's a magic trick. People, if you can do it well, people want to see, see it again. And, um, and, and it's also made, you know, the, the ugly attractive for millennia. So that was perfect for a guy like me. I said, I'm in, you know, if this can get me some, you know, uh, if this can get me one of like my Hebrew school, one of the girls at Hebrew school to think that I was at least a little handsome with or without the kippah, like I'm down the clown. And so I feel like I wanted to, I wanted to just find a way out of my circumstance. You know, I wanted to find something that would allow me to not feel at a disadvantage because I assumed real, you know, and whether this was real or not, I, I might've, it it might've been all fantasy in my head, but I don't think it was that when you entered a room and you were overweight, you were at a disadvantage. People made a snap judgment about you that you were either slovenly or you lacked willpower. And I would imagine most of that was in my head, but I think there was still like this weird primordial reaction. Um, And especially in the nineties before body positivity and before it became taboo to talk to a kid about being overweight to their face, I remember so many instances where I was 10 years old at the doctor and they're literally scaring the life out of me like I'm 55 and a type two diabetic. And they're like, your cholesterol is out of a 60 year old. And I wanted to be like, I'm 10. Like what part of you thinks I'm equipped to deal with this? Like this is, you know, obviously me being overweight is but a symptom of some deeper issues. So comedy to your point, was always sort of this golden key for me. It allowed me to feel self-confidence where I wasn't getting it at Little League. It got me admittance to the professional performing arts school where I went in Midtown, which allowed me to realize I could make a living doing this thing that I loved. And and one year later, it got me my own TV show. So it uh, it, it was certainly worth it.
0: You know, you do th- you think the comedy skills? I mean, obviously, I, I think this is the case. The comedy skills probably convince you or convince others that you didn't really need the full suite of acting skills because you look at like so many great actors in Hollywood came from origins in comedy or improv, like all the people who star in the Judd Apatow movies uh, come from some sort of improv or comedy background, like Seth Rogen, there's clips of him doing comedy at his, you know, right after his bar mitzvah and uh, all the people from the office were, were improv people and, and so on.
1: Absolutely, I think I think there's also just something synonymous with like, you know, acting is in a weird way the ultimate team sport, which is what I find so damn frustrating about it. I mean, even when you're practicing, like, how do you? You can't really practice as an actor, right? You can sit in your room and work on, you know, um, uh, some guitar riff at nauseam till your fingers bleed. You can sit in front of a typewriter if you're that kind of douchebag and write to your heart's, you know, desire, but you can't really act by yourself. And so stand up is something that if you can summon the courage to, you know, be pilloried in the town square at your local comedy club, you can probably get five minutes at an open mic. And you get all the win and you get all the loss, you know? And I think it takes a particular person, but I I would imagine too, there's a desperation which to like get out there and find validation more so than maybe someone who's traditionally just uh, into
0: drama. That's right. It's You live and die by yourself up there on Mm -hmm. the stage. It's an honest profession. Someone's either gonna laugh or boo the, the opposite or just talk to their friends while you're performing because that's their choice mostly based on what you're doing on stage yeah and then you went from that to acting which on the one hand okay you have to pursue it you have to go for it you have to go to every audition which which you did you have to you know call over all over the place have your agent do it whatever but still at the end of the day somebody is saying i like this kid and not this kid and just depending on their whims that day you know so so which means persistence is important and quantity is important because you never you have to kind of create your own luck, but you did it and and you had like one of the most successful shows ever for for several years
1: I yeah, I think you're right that it's like Mitch Hedberg has that great joke about you know stand-up comedy is one of the few professions where you get good at it, and then people ask, are you good at anything else <laughs> like you know, now we're in the age of Netflix and whatnot, where you can truly get a stand-up special in between podcasting and being a stand-up, you don't really need to do anything else. But you know, in the 90s, it was like, well, then you'll do a sitcom or, you, you know, or if you're really at a Jedi level, you'll get a movie career like Eddie Murphy. But um, you're right. I, I think, you know, stand-up for me, it was in one way, it was a way out, but also like I had the success. I, I also had this very specific niche of being like a young comedian and it wasn't terribly hard. So, and I think that was just because of my age and that I I was getting a little bit of help from the audience for being so young and having the courage to get up there. And also I, I had about five to eight minutes that I knew worked. Um, so eventually when I was 14 and I got this TV show, the thing that I, you know, I I grew up watching Nickelodeon. It was You know, this show, All That, which was like the kids' SNL, was the holy grail. And my best friends growing up when I was alone and my mom was at work were the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Happy Gilmore and Ace Ventura. So I wanted to be like those guys. And I knew that was the way. So, yeah, I, I felt like I'd have to embrace acting if I really wanted to be able to maybe one day operate at that level.
0: Describe, like, how do you think it was that you basically landed, you know, the most successful show on Nickelodeon?
1: It was at a time where, you know, there was one guy basically making all the shows for Nickelodeon, and his name was Dan Schneider. And he created a show called All That, and then that spun off The Amanda Show, which was the show that I was on. I mean, I was 12 years old in my first movie ever for Nickelodeon called Snow Day with Chevy Chase and Chris Elliott. And and I'm making this guy laugh and he walks away and my mom sidles up to me and goes, you know who that is? That's the president of Nickelodeon. Like, tell him you want to be on all that. So, you know, I don't know where I, I summoned the chutzpah other than I was 12 and truly had nothing to lose. But I told this guy, Albie Hecht, the president of Nickelodeon, that I, the president of nothing, should be on one of his TV shows. And nine months later I was on the show and and I say in the book, I don't know what lesson that is, except maybe shoot your shot. But I just knew that I knew that being chubby, funny, and ambitious at 13 years old and precocious that I was, there was a small pool of people like me and that it would probably be feasible for me to get on a show like that. Like they probably wanted to buy what I was selling at some time. And there was another actor on the Amanda show named Drake. And I I remember that Nickelodeon called Dan Schneider and said, do you have an idea for another buddy comedy, a la Keenan and Kel, which was another show of his. And he said, I think, um, you know, I think I might have something, but I don't know. And, and a month later, Drake and I are doing our final scene on the show for that season of Amanda show. And One of the writers named Steve Malaro, who's gone on to huge success with Chuck Lorre, said, don't they want you to make a buddy comedy? And Dan said, yeah. Uh, And Steve said, those two idiots wrestling on the floor in this scene, those are your buddies. And so six months later was Drake and Josh. So in a weird way, it was like I was part of a system that was just sort of churning out you know everyone got a spin off if you were good and the girl who played our little sister on the show got her own show for 100 episodes so it was like i was part of a great system but i was chubby funny and ambitious you can't you can't mess with that recipe james
0: i no i i i, I won't mess <laughs> with it you know then you went through the economics which surprised me like so you said so you started off making 10k an episode then it went up to 20k yes. an episode and you broke it down you know you had to get the agent this the, the, you know taxes this and essentially you were making 100k a year which is like a good salary but it doesn't like set you up for life and I know you were in a couple of film spinoffs from it as well but it's interesting to me like you you, you can't just rest on that like you're not getting are you getting checks now like 15 years later or however many years later from Drake and Josh
1: no way there's no residuals on kids TV which is even cuter just fun facts <laughs>
0: Oh, it's so great. Like, so it's not like a Seinfeld situation.
1: No, not like, at all.
0: But you were getting like the numbers though. Like was it? 10 million people watched the, the first show or some outrageous number of millions of people?
1: It was an absurd amount of, of people. And also it was at a time where, you know, TV was just at its sort of at its apex, sort of right before social media. But. Yeah. And it's and, and I only talk about the money in the book because to your point, I think it's natural that most people assume when you have a successful show like that, that maybe you're not set for life life, but you're set for a really good amount of time. But in reality, I think by the time I was finished with the show at 19, I had about a year left of runway of savings because a hundred grand living in LA per year, my mom and I would, would mostly live on that. And so- and also there was no social media, right? So it wasn't like, well, financially we weren't exactly taken care of, but at least, you know, I have this asset now that will walk with me and come with me to whatever I do next. It was basically like I was at the mercy of the business and I needed to work and
0: quick. Yeah. Like, and, and what you did next was, was really fascinating, but, I'm just curious like now Netflix and Amazon and Apple and all these networks and all these shows there's like 20,000 actors on the air and probably another million actors trying to be on the air what is going to happen to all these actors
1: It's a good question I mean I think there's somewhat like 500 shows in production now and and it and by the way and still you know I'm going on auditions and I won't get I won't get feedback <laughs> I'll just they'll be like "Oh, I didn't go your way" and I'm like Really, like, I I can't believe there's so many shows out here, and I didn't get this role. So it, it's cool to know that there's rejection with so much opportunity still. Um, but you're right. I don't know what happens to these actors. We'll probably have to build like gigantic retirement homes for them.
0: Like, like, at what point do these do, do any of these actors decide? You know what? I'm just going to be an accountant. Or not that there's anything wrong with accounting. Right. If my accountant's listening to this, you're my hero. <laughs> don't ever forget it. But What do people do? Like I see all like some of these people are great actors on these shows that I love. Like I watch TV all the time and, but then I'll never see them again on any show ever.
1: I mean, that is, you're bringing up like the existential question uh, that I think so many actors face that I've had to, because no one walks away. Like nobody walks away from the golden bag. Like and it's also the moment you become a public person, like the moment you're elevated to um, to the point in which you're getting recognized, it's like you also have to deal with that ego deflation that you might go on to be like the best real estate agent in Dallas. But you know that when people leave that like lovely two-story colonial that you're selling for $675,000 in a wonderful school district that they're going like, isn't that the guy from or like, what happened to him now a lot of, because a lot of people don't know the truth that a very select few I, I think the number is 95% of people in the screen actors guild um have to make a living doing something other than acting so there's only
0: 5% so like you went from being in the top of the world with all these shows and 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 parts and everything and then you know you kind of had this classic Hollywood story, hip bottom, drugs, alcohol, 12 steps, the whole thing, you know, the weight issues, all that. And you had to figure out what, what to do, (laughs) like, what did you consider?
1: The truth is, is throughout this period, and it was about 10 years through my 20s, I was working, but it was incredibly inconsistent. So the jobs were inconsistent, and so were my performances, which is a bad recipe, James. It was not looking good. And I was lucky enough that I was uniquely suited for sort of the the renaissance that came with social media, and especially an app called Vine, which was basically early TikTok. And I remember my, my wife, who's, who was my girlfriend at the time, we were just fans. And, and she encouraged me one day. She said, why don't you try it? Why don't you make one? So I, I make this Vine. And it just so happened that Twitter had bought Vine. So there was this uh, sort of symbiosis between the two in that if you had a couple followers on Twitter, which I did because I was this public guy, maybe 10,000 followers, not a crazy amount, you would somehow get a little bit of a push in the algorithm on Vine. So my first, first video does pretty well. My fifth video is on the popular page of the Vine app. And my 10th video, I'm now getting a couple hundred thousand followers a month. And I remember I was just making these videos in my car or around my friends, bits that, I've, that I'd done my whole life or telling funny stories that I knew. But it was so powerful because I wasn't at the mercy of the gatekeepers I could shoot something, edit it, and post it in an hour instead of waiting 18 months for something to come out. And I remember I was truly at like this, I was at this turning point where I was getting a lot of notice from Vine. And I got a call from my agent and manager saying like, we've been trying to make you something more than the chubby kid star guy. And now you're being an idiot in your car? Like, is this really the look we're going for? Is this, does this help us? And I was so lucky to have this friend of mine who was in social media early on. He helped start a company called The Audience, which was sort of like one of the, the first social branding companies. And he said to me, shout out Rami, Rami Perlman, uh, an apostle of mine. He said, Josh, let me tell you something. Don't let anybody tell you that they know what this is. I work in social media and even I don't know what it is. But having hundreds of thousands of people who are invested in you, who are watching what you do and giving you feedback is powerful. Lean into this. Make a video every day. And I did. And within a year, I was the number one person on the app. And six months later, I did my first brand deal, which grew into this like pretty lucrative business because I knew that if I had the eyeballs, the advertisers would come because people don't just, you know, the, they're not just buying commercials on the Super Bowl for their health, for the love of the game, right? Like the advertisers go where the eyeballs are. And suddenly I had built this new business, uh, that I could have, I never could have expected.
0: Yeah. You grew, you grew to nine and a half million followers on Vine, right? I did. Yes. And of course then Vine shut down and you, you write <laughs> about this in the book, You like nine and a half million followers all gone in a second, but they're not really gone. I mean, they're still out there. And they, uh, uh, like Rami said to you, they're still invested in you. They just don't know where to invest. But sure. I'm just curious, like as you're building that skill, how do you keep reinventing? Like I'm like having nine and a half million followers. I'm sure that's a lot of pressure on you to please all of them on every video. How do you keep it fresh so that you're still reinventing and improving? In that in that is this, Vine was a six second video format.
1: It's a great. It's a great question. I mean, I think I was uniquely suited for the six second format because of, you know, the kind of comedy that I did that eventually would be to my detriment because I was too sticky for anything else was perfect for six seconds because it was really hard to be subtle in that short of time. Plus, you know, no one's ever said about a joke. It was really good, but it could have been wordier, right? Like it, I basically was, it was all about economy and I had to create, I had to figure out a punchline and then create a setup and everything that worked within six seconds.
0: So like, what's an example? Like what's one of your favorite videos that you did?
1: Oh man, there was, I'm trying to think of what, uh, (laughs) what, what were some of the ones you know there were there were simple ones there was this cup game initially uh, uh, Anna Kendrick had a song where you would play a cup game and basically you would sing the song as you're doing this sort of cup trick and it was it was Oh yeah
0: what, what what was that was a that was a good fun movie I saw that movie a bunch of times actually
1: <laughs> From maybe was it pitch perfect
0: Yeah it was pitch perfect yeah
1: So it became super trendy so of course like my sticky instincts like oh I just should just buy a breakaway glass and I should start the game and then put my hand through the glass. Like, I, I mean, it's literally <laughs> borscht belt shit, James. Like, uh, So no, that's good though. And, you know, and I immediately, and then of course I have the reaction of my hand and, and I kind of walk off at uh, a of frame. And so I, I just sort of knew that if I could continue to think of these things and, and you also eventually, you know, for better or for worse, my friend uh, who works in social media says, listen the algorithm will always reward consistency. He's like, cause it's the only way we win. He's like, so keep posting, even if something's not great. And I think that too, you had to sort of, you had to be, you had to have a McDonald's approach and maybe not a three Michelin star approach, right? Like we're just going to feed America. It's not going to be the best, but you'll be full. <laughs> And, and I think that helped too, was that I just kept it up. I was really consistent.
0: Well, I, I remember one, one guy once told me who he, this was an early YouTuber once told me that it doesn't really matter the videos where you're bad because nobody's watching those anyway, <laughs> that they're bad. Right. So nobody watched them. So the, if you just, but, but the consistency, you're going to have some good ones. And those are the ones that millions of people will watch. It's a, it's a great point. And so, so then Vine shuts down. You 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 did express your dismay in in the book, but were you depressed about this? Were you in despair? Like what was going on in your life then? To be honest,
1: I was I was really expecting it, and it was I mean it'll be studied in the annals of business schools everywhere, right? The massive gaff that was sort of Vine, and and I don't mean to like um, to take shots at something that that helped me so much. I, I love Vine. I wish it was I wish it was TikTok before TikTok, but. You know, we as creators, we, we had sort of conveyed to them changes that would behoove the app. And unfortunately, you know, to the detriment of, of what should be the one thing that a startup is great at is that they just couldn't pivot. Um, and so it was expected. I was also on a TV show at the time because sort of a byproduct of creating this big social following was that suddenly my stock had sort of risen in the traditional world a bit because... I was able to offer this extra level of helping to promote something I was on with my following. And so I was really grateful of that. So I, I was on this show with John Stamos the day I got the call that, that Vine is done. And I was like, well, I'm on a TV show now. And then that got canceled a month later. So I was like, ah, this feels comfortable. I know what this feeling feels like. So that, you know, again was, you know, why I decided six months later to throw myself into YouTube and, and tackle that new challenge.
0: And you know the way you describe it, like you had a whole bunch of views on the first video, but then it started getting f- fewer and fewer views. What was what was going on? You think
1: I was trying? I was people pleasing. I was trying to give people what I thought they wanted instead of what I thought was funny. And eventually, it took me a year. I, I didn't miss a single year of posting, no matter how dismal the viewership was. And it, but I see now that that year was sort of like my my R&D. It was me sort of learning so much of my growth. So so much of the golden key for me is has been addition by subtraction. So when I realized that I'm never going to be comfortable being that guy in the airport talking to a gigantic camera, um, I'm certainly not the prank guy, and um, and I'm not going to be a makeup guru no matter how hard I try. But I am great at being a yenta. I'm great at talking to a camera and cracking jokes. And then it seemed to be a time where food videos, also known as mukbangs, which is a Korean word for like an eating show, seemed to be like really gaining steam in the algorithm. So I said, all right, well, why don't I try just talking to the camera? I'll invite a friend over and we can chat and make jokes and we can eat something delicious. And let's see how that does. And and that that got five million views, and from wow. then on, I I knew my uh, I knew my lane.
0: So you you did the those muk, mukbang videos, uh, uh, yeah. Forever after,
1: <laughs> I I did a lot of mukbangs. Some might say too many, and uh, but it, it eventually it just became. I, I have a great friend, my podcast co-host um, Joe Volpes of the the podcast Male Models, because we're we're both the ugliest male models there are. <laughs> And, uh, and you know, he, we were working together. And so he basically said, listen, let me hold the camera for you. You do what you do best, which is be in front of the camera and make fun of yourself. And, and so then it sort of became an idiot's guide to life, whether we went to get our fat frozen at a cool sculpting med spa, whether we went to the Taco Bell headquarters or we're taking Krav Maga classes and, you know, getting kicked in the groin. It was like, you're probably not going to do
0: this, but we will and you can watch us do it. And and now how would you like now you have the podcast, you have YouTube, you still are doing acting, a lot of acting. Uh it seems like you evolved to the point where okay, now you can't lose an audience because you're nobody can find where you really are. <laughs> you're everywhere, <laughs> so you can't lose the audience. Hollywood itself, that, that structure can't take it away from you because you've got the audience and social media. So how would you, what do you, like, what's a day like for you right now?
1: Wow. It's a great, thank you. And it, it's a great question. I, you know, so now I have this book that, you know, felt like, you know, I love this. uh, You would probably know this better than me. And I don't, I think maybe I'm misquoting him, but I think Marshall McCullough says, uh, has a phrase, the medium is the message. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's like in writing this book, right, is is that I looked at the last 20 years and what would be the best way for me to convey my experience to perhaps give someone a little bit of insight that's going through something similar. You know, I, I always say this book is like, um, it's a reluctant memoir. It's views from the halfway point because I'm really not interested if you're literally at the mountaintop chugging a Gatorade telling me everything's going to work out. but if you're a few steps ahead of me and giving me good intel from the front lines, well, that to me is attractive. So I figured that if I wanted to sort of share my, get really honest about where I came from and my origin story and share that with an audience, a book would be the best way, which has allowed me to do something like this. So, you know, now I'm, I'm promoting that and I'm going to go do the small part in this cool movie in New Mexico next month. And, but what I'm really worried about is what my TikTok's going to be tomorrow.
0: Oh yeah. So yeah, you must be, are you, are you living large on, on TikTok? Like how many followers do you have there?
1: I'm doing all right on TikTok. I'm seven and a half million. And, uh, it, it's beautiful. TikTok's a great, it's great over at TikTok. <laughs> uh,
0: so, you know, there's a couple other things I'm curious about. Like in 2006, you said you were in some movie, the director or the or the producer or whatever writes you this huge email when you're, when you're late. And, and it was really kind of like those, one of those emails you really don't want to get, from a person who has some degree of power over you, positive or negative. And it was a it was a Judd Apatow movie. That was Judd <laughs> Apatow writing this email to you. What was the what was the movie?
1: It was a movie called Drill Bit Taylor with uh, oh, yeah. Owen Wilson and Danny McBride. Yeah. I um you know I hesitate I, I I debated whether or not to to include his name in the book, but because I was able to make an amends in person for for my just Supremely stupid behavior. Um, I felt like if I just said a powerful producer in Hollywood wrote me this email, it would lack that oomph for when you're reading it to just realize how successfully I face planted and shot my career in the face. But
0: and it wasn't just that because also you you showed so much appreciation for his other movies like and, and like like Superbad is one of my all time favorite movies. So which came out I guess a year later. So
1: oh. You're going to love this next sentence then, James, because so basically just to give like the quick backstory, I finished Drake and Josh. I have lost a hundred pounds. I've discovered drugs and alcohol, and now I've totally just switched addictions. And I'm being like a total typical cliche actor with a little bit of money and uh, basically just like an unreliable uh, knucklehead kid, sowing my wild oats, as they'd say. So I get this opportunity in this Judd Apatow movie who, who, if anyone really respects the powers of a funny Jew, it's Judd Apatow. And, and I audition and, and he says to me, you know, you're not right for the part you auditioned for, but you're funny. So I'm going to write you a little part in this movie and just come hang out. Write funny jokes for other people. We'll mm-hmm. figure out ways to put you in scenes. Just be around, be one of the guys. And so I did, but of course I just... As I say, I wasn't a monster. I just was, um, I was just a bummer. I just would show up a little late. I'd hang out in my trailer more than I should. I just was not taking advantage of this incredible opportunity. But back to your point, uh, the first couple of days were going pretty well. And I remember Judd mentioned to me as we're watching playback one day, he goes, hey, you know, I'm working on this other film right now. You might want to come by set. Maybe we could figure out a part for you in that too. And I was like, Oh, oh yeah, what's God. it called? And he says, uh, super bad. <laughs> and, uh, spoiler alert, I'm not in super bad.
0: <laughs> oh man. I did not. That is, that is going to go down in history as one of the classics.
1: That That's my, yeah, that's my vine. That's where I, that's where I gaffed. And I, uh, yeah, I, I screwed up and I didn't take advantage of that opportunity and I was basically just late a lot and, um, less than prepared. And eventually I got an email from Judd one day when I was particularly late to set and he was, um, he was there. And, and it basically was, you cannot do this. This is an unacceptable way to act. You're costing this movie money and time. And this one won't, won't work here. It won't work anywhere. And you're pretty funny, but your professionalism needs work. And that uh, I, I couldn't have understood the weight of that then, but I, it is brutal.
0: How did you, how did you make amends with him?
1: I just, you know what, uh, in, in, in getting sober when I was 21, it was certainly like this glaring thing that I thought about more than, more than I should. Um, and I just knew there was a high likelihood that, that we had enough similar sort of acquaintances that our paths would cross. And eventually I just saw him at, at this charity event and thankfully he was feeling charitable and just gave me a minute and, I didn't want to make a big thing of it, but I just wanted to tell him where I was at that time and and how much I appreciated him giving me this opportunity and and that I apologized that I wasn't able to show up for him and you know again like in so many of these um, when we have a transgression or we feel really guilty about it more times than not I find that it, it affects the other person so much less than it affects us right we carry the guilt and the shame for so long because. I could see for a moment it crossing his, his eyes of like, where do I know you from again? (laughs) But, um, but it, you know, and since then I've seen him a few times and I I just hope that one day I can like work craft service for him or be his, you know, assistant. Cause I just, you know, I, I I still feel the need to do something to, uh, to make it up to him.
0: And, and I love the, the, first off, I love that you're a huge fan of Van Kingsley. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything that was not like, Amazing since I was a kid, but I love the advice he gives you. And by the way, you don't—I don't quite—I sort of feel from the way you wrote it, it kind of seems like he didn't like you all that much. (laughs) I couldn't tell.
1: Oh man! So we made this movie called The Whackness, Sir Sir Ben and I. And basically, he's my favorite actor. I was 20 years old making this New York story about this kid who's obsessed with hip hop in 1994 who trades marijuana for therapy. And the therapist is played by Ben Kingsley. And and we had this incredible six weeks together. And it was literally like playing tennis with someone so much better than you. It like elevated my game. And whether it was Sexy Beast or Schindler's List or searching for Bobby Fischer, I mean, I I the fact that I've been able to start my career as an adult with Sir Ben, it's like everything else is, is icing. But Nevertheless, I remember on the final day, I don't know whether I was looking for a surrogate father figure or just any kind of advice. I asked him, you know, do you have any advice? Because I don't know if I'll ever see you again. And he looked at me and he said, find your apostles. And I was like, I'm a Jew. That seems like a New Testament thing. Also, I'm really looking for a hack on how to become a superstar movie actor. Like, not looking for life advice. But he went on to say... um, surround yourself with people who make you better. Um, people that you can not only rejoice, but despair with in, 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 moments of challenge. And if you're ever in a room with people that don't make you feel that way, leave immediately.
0: It's such And great of course advice. I couldn't
1: have understand. It's great, right? So I couldn't, I couldn't have taken that in at the time, but it's, it's been the best advice I've ever gotten.
0: Have you ever performed with him again?
1: I haven't, but he is, I can't tell you how incredibly lovely and wonderful he was while we were making this film. He knew that he was my favorite actor, so I think he treated me even more kindly than he would, but he just was, um, he was just sort of like the perfect elder statesman and getting to act against him was like one of the great honors of my life. And uh, and people always say like, do you guys keep in touch? I was like, of course not. <laughs> What what well, do I have to offer Sir Ben now? I mean, come on, he's a knight; he's the best.
0: You never know. Maybe he's gonna. Maybe he wants to get more involved in social media. Yeah, you know, like there's a. You know, you you've spent time helping brands and companies. Like you know, you were like a, a one man social media agency for a while as well. But in between, you know, while while your vine was rising, so you never know. I can I can help. And Sir maybe ben. one day you'll perform with him again.
1: I could help Sir Ben with a lit TikTok. Yeah. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> well. Josh, it's been so great having you on the podcast. I'm a fan and I really love your book Happy People Are Annoying. I agree with that sentiment, so but it's good to see that you're happy and not annoying. So that's that's a good thing. But thanks so much for for coming on the show and and sharing your your stories. It's it's great.
1: James, I, I, as I said, I'm a huge fan. I, I love chatting with you. So thanks for having me.
0: Oh, no problem. Come back anytime.
1: Awesome, man. That sounds great, dude. And maybe we can play chess one day we